The season is almost arrived when, by the custom of our fellow citizens, we are led to remember the birth of the Holy Child Jesus, who was born King of the Jews. I shall not, however, conduct you to Bethlehem, but to the foot of Calvary. There we shall learn, from the Lord's own lips, something concerning the kingdom over which he rules, and thus we shall be led to prize more highly the joyous event of his nativity. Spurgeon reminds us in this week's sermon that there's more to the incarnation than the birth narratives, and that to consider the man who was born king of the Jews will get a different, not necessarily better, but a certainly complementary view of the Lord Christ, not from Bethlehem, but from Calvary. It's important then that when we consider who he is, why he came, and what he does, that we take a full-orbed view. In order to do this, Spurgeon is preaching from John 18:37. Pilate therefore said unto him, Art thou a king then? Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king. To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Every one that is of the truth heareth my voice. This sermon was preached on a Thursday evening, actually the 19th of December in 1872 at the Tabernacle by Spurgeon. And as you can hear from his introduction, it is, in his mind, something of a Christmas sermon, but giving us a measure of breadth and depth in our understanding of the Lord Christ. It's Sermon 1086 in our reading programme, and this week we're reading from Sermon 1081 to 87, and uh, God willing, next week we'll be on to 1088 to 1094, and 1094 is our featured sermon, Always and for All Things. As ever, to follow along with this, you can find us at mediagratii.org slash podcasts or follow along on Twitter or X at Reading Spurgeon. Uh, my name is Jeremy Walker, and I hope that this will be a blessing to you as we trace through the sermons that were preached and then published by Charles Spurgeon during and after his lifetime. But let's get back to today's sermon because we're told by Paul that our Lord Jesus Christ before Pontius Pilate witnessed a good confession. It was a good confession as to the manner of it. It was a, a patient uh, and yet a forthright modelling of witness for the truth. And says Spurgeon, we may never like Paul be made to plead before Nero, but if we should, may the Lord stand by us and help us to play the man before the lion. In our families, or among our business acquaintances, we may have to meet some little Nero and answer to some petty pilot. May we then also be true witnesses. What a good example and uh, what a good image for us to carry into the next few weeks. Uh, those uh, awkward customers with whom you have to deal, those uh, difficult family members, those uh, bolshy and bossy neighbours, what are they but little Neros and petty pilots before whom we have a privilege and an opportunity to be true witnesses. Oh, that we may have grace then to be prudently silent or meekly outspoken as the matter may require, says Spurgeon, in either case being faithful to our conscience and our God. May the sorrowful visage of Jesus, the faithful and true witness, the Prince of the Kings of the Earth, be often before our eye to check, to to, to stop or prevent the first sign of flinching 
and to inspire us with dauntless courage. So let's consider then our Saviour's good confession concerning his kingdom. Spurgeon says that first of all, our Lord claimed to be a king. Pilate asked, are you a king then? With a a sneering surprise that so poor a being should put forth a claim to royalty. Christ answered, in effect, it is as you say, I am a king. The question was half earnest, the answer altogether solemn. Notice, says Spurgeon, that our Lord's claim to be be a king was made without the slightest ostentation, without any uh, performance or puffing up or desire to be advantaged by the claim. There were other times when, if he'd said, I'm a king, he might have been carried upon the shoulders of the people and crowned amid general acclamations. There were opportunities for him to uh, abuse his true identity had he been inclined to do so. But it's only now when he's standing before Pontius Pilate, when no good can come of it to himself, when it will bring derision rather than honour, that he plainly makes this claim. Then notice the clarity of our Lord's avowal. Truth has her times most meet or fit for speech and her seasons for silence. We are not to cast our pearls before swine, but when the hour has come for speech, we must not hesitate, but speak as with the voice of a trumpet, giving forth a certain sound that no man may mistake us. Spurgeon says, Oh, for the master's prudence to speak the truth at the right time, and for the master's courage to speak it when the right time has come. Soldiers of the cross, he exhorts us, learn of your captain. Then another observation on this claim to kingship, that the Lord's claim to royalty must have sounded very singularly in Pilate's ear. That means it must have been quite distinctive, quite unusual. When Pilate looked at the Lord Jesus, he would not have seen anything that would have spoken to him of true royalty. And to this day, pure Christianity in its outward appearance, says our preacher, is an equally unattractive object and wears upon its surface few royal tokens. It is without form or comeliness, and when men see it, there's no beauty that they should desire it. True, there is a nominal Christianity, which is accepted and approved of men, but the pure gospel is still despised and rejected. The real Christ of today among men is unknown and unrecognised as much as he was among his own nation 1800 years ago. Evangelical doctrine is at a discount, holy living is censured, and spiritual mindedness is derided. What, say they, this evangelical doctrine? Call you it the royal truth? Who believes it nowadays? Science has exploded it. There's nothing great about it. It may afford comfort to old women and to those who've not capacity enough for free thought, but its reign is over, never to return. As to living in separation from the world, it's called Puritanism or worse. Christ in doctrine, Christ in spirit, Christ in life, the world cannot endure as king. Christ chanted in cathedrals, Christ personified in lordly prelates, Christ surrounded by such as are in king's houses, he is well enough. But Christ honestly obeyed, followed and worshipped in simplicity, without pomp or form, they will not allow to reign over them. Spurgeon's point then is that as much today as it was when Christ stood before Pilate, the presentation of his royal dignity uh, is uh, very much Uh, out of line with the the reality of the case. He doesn't appear to be a king, though he is indeed. 
And so even as beneath the peasant's garb and the wan visage of the Son of Mary, we can discern the wonderful, the counsellor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, says Spurgeon, so beneath the simple form of a despised gospel, we perceive the royal lineaments of truth divine. Then he goes on to make the point that our Lord's claim to be king shall be acknowledged one day by all mankind. He is virtually prophesying the future confession of all men when Christ says to Pilate, you say that I am a king. He goes on again that when our Lord said to Pilate these words, he was not referring to his divine dominion. Pilate wasn't thinking of that at all, nor did our Lord, I think, refer to it. Yet forget not that, as divine, he is the King of kings and Lord of lords. So what is he speaking of then if he's not speaking of his divine rule? Well, Spurgeon suggests it's his mediatorial sovereignty which he possesses over the earth for his people's sake. It is then as saviour that he shows himself king. He claimed to be a king then, says Spurgeon, and the truth which he revealed and of which he was the personification is therefore the scepter of his empire. He rules by the force of truth over those hearts which feel the power of right and truth and therefore willingly yield themselves to his guidance, believe his word and are governed by his will. It is as a spiritual Lord that Christ came, claims sovereignty among men. He is king over minds that love him, trust him and obey him because they see in him the truth which their souls pine for. Other kings rule our bodies, but Christ our souls. They govern by force, but he by the attractions of righteousness. Theirs is, to a great extent, a fictitious royalty, but his is true and finds its force in truth. This is an interesting approach in this particular sermon. Although we can see on one level how these points are deriving from the text, uh, in another sense, it's, it's really Spurgeon riffing off some of the ideas that are in the text. Uh, it's not divorced from this verse, but it's more, uh, more dealing with the ideas that arise out of it. This claim then to be a king and what that actually means as he tries to almost to put himself in the, in the foot in the shoes of an observer. But then secondly, you note, and again, you can see grounded in the text, but giving rise to these particular thoughts, is that our Lord declared this kingdom to be his main object in life. To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world. To set up his kingdom was the reason why he was born of the virgin. To be king of men, it was necessary for him to be born. And now Spurgeon's asking the question, well, well, why should that be? Well, several answers. First, because it seems unnatural that a ruler should be alien in nature to the people over whom he rules. Jesus then, that he might govern by force of love and truth alone, became of one nature with mankind. He was a man among men, a real man, but a right noble and kingly man, and so a king of men. Again, the Lord was born that he might be able to save his people. Subjects are essential to a kingdom, and a king cannot be a king if there are none to govern. But all men must have perished through sin had not Christ come into the world and been born to save. So you have incarnation as necessary for redemption. Moreover, says Spurgeon, truth never exerts such power as when it is embodied, and so Christ must be born. Truth spoken may be defeated, but truth acted out in the life of a man is omnipotent through the Spirit of God. 
Now, Christ did not merely speak the truth, but he was truth. And so, says Spurgeon, when you hear the bells ringing out at Christmas, think of the reason why Jesus was born. Dream not that he came to load your tables and fill your cups, but in your mirth look higher than all earth-born things. When you hear that in certain churches there are pompous celebrations and ecclesiastical displays, think not for this purpose was Jesus born. No, but look within your hearts and say, for this purpose was he born, that he might be a king, that he might rule through the truth in the souls of a people who are by grace made to love the truth of God. So again, you've got this this text and Spurgeon's interrogating it. To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world. For this end I was born. Why was he born? Three answers. And then next, for this reason I came into the world. That is, he came out of the bosom of the Father, that he might set up his kingdom by unveiling the mysteries which were hid from the foundation of the world. No man can reveal the counsel of God, but one who has been with God. And here is the Son now coming forth to make known God, to make known truth. He comes into the world. Here again is this emphasis on the reality of the incarnation. It was needful then that he should be seen in this way. The life of a man who lives in absolute retirement, says Spurgeon, may be admirable for himself and acceptable with God, but it cannot be exemplary to men. For this cause the Lord came forth into the world that all he did might influence mankind. He can be seen, he can be heard, beheld, looked upon, touched and handled. So Spurgeon says, pause a moment, think on these things. Christ is a king, a king by force of truth in a spiritual kingdom. For this purpose was he born, for this cause came he into the world. My soul, ask thyself this question. Has this purpose of Christ's birth and life been answered in thee? If not, what avails Christmas to thee? The choristers will sing, Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Is that true to thee? How can it be, unless Jesus reigns in thee, and is thy Saviour and thy Lord? Those who can in truth rejoice in his birth are those who know him as their bosom's Lord, ruling their understanding by the truth of his doctrine, their admiration by the truth of his life, their affections by the truth of his person. To such he is not a personage to be portrayed with a crown of gold and a robe of purple like the common theatrical kings of men, but one brighter and more heavenly, whose crown is real, whose dominion is unquestionable, who rules by truth and love. Do we know this king? Can you really say, Spurgeon is asking, Christ is my king, that we we love him, we esteem him, we obey him. That is alone a true Christian and everyone else a mere pretender. Again, the incarnation enough and some kind of casual, carnal, cultural celebration, insufficient. Christ must be king in our hearts by his truth. And that brings us to Spurgeon's third point, that our Lord revealed the nature of his royal power. And here he says, I've already talked about this, but I'm going to have to do so again. He he says, the text might have run, we would have thought. You say that I am a king, to this end was I born, and for this cause I came into the world, that I should establish my kingdom. But if our Lord had said that in that way, he might have misled Pilate. But he 
took the spiritual explanation and said that his kingdom was truth and that the establishment of his kingdom was by bearing witness to the truth so that Pilate was not in any way misled, even though he could not understand. And Spurgeon, again, really uh, caught up with this idea of truth as uh, in relation to Christ and his kingdom, tells us that truth is the preeminent characteristic of his kingdom and that his royal power over men's hearts is through the truth. Now, he says, the witness of our Lord among men was emphatically upon real and vital matters. He dealt not with fiction, but with facts, not with trifles, but with infinite realities. He speaks not of opinions, views or speculations, but of infallible verities. How many preachers waste time over what may be or may not be. Our Lord's testimony was preeminently practical and matter-of-fact, full of verities and certainties. I've sometimes, when hearing sermons, says Spurgeon, wished the preacher would come to the point and would deal with something that really concerned our soul's welfare. What concern have dying men with the thousand trivial questions which are flitting around us? We have heaven or hell before us, and death within a stone's throw. For God's sake, do not trifle with us, but tell us the truth at once. Jesus is king in his people's souls, because his preaching has blessed us in the grandest and most real manner, and set us at rest upon points of boundless importance. He's not given us well-chiselled stones, but real bread. There are a thousand things which you may not know, and you shall be very little the worse for not knowing them. But, oh, if you do not know that which Jesus has taught, it shall go ill with you. If you're taught of the Lord Jesus, you shall have rest for your cares, balm for your sorrows, and satisfaction for your desires. Jesus gives sinners who believe in him the truth which they need to know, the assurance of sin forgiven through his blood, favour ensured by his righteousness, and heaven secured by his eternal life. So Spurgeon then is, is emphasising that this is the nature of Christ's power. It is by truth. And our Lord dealt in realities, in verities, in substantial truth, uh, not in, in notions or ideas. And that's what we need. And there are lots of times when uh, preachers or, or other people are, are agitating about nonsenses and and. Uh, vanities and Spurgeon says you're going to need to concentrate on the things that are real and true. Moreover, he says, Jesus has power over his people because he testifies not to symbols but to the very substance of the truth. The scribes and the Pharisees and the priests concentrated only on the shadow, the symbol, but the Lord Christ has power over his saints because he reveals the substance, for grace and truth are by Jesus Christ. So let us take care, lest we also set great store by externals and miss the essential spiritual life of our holy faith. And again, Spurgeon's concerned that Christmas is so full of religious performance. He, he talks about the, uh, the, uh, the fashion of a cope, the manner of celebrating communion, the suitable colour for the clergyman's robes in Advent, the precise date of Easter. What he's saying is, do you know the Christ who saves these externals are nothing. Christ's kingdom is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. Then further, Christ's power in the hearts of his people lies much in the fact that he brings forth unalloyed truth without mixture of error. 
Men taught of his Holy Spirit to love the truth recognize this fact and surrender their souls to the royal sway of the Lord's truth and it makes them free and sanctifies them. Nor can anything make them disown such a sovereign for as the truth lives and abides in their hearts so Jesus who is truth abides also. If you know what truth is, you will as naturally submit yourselves to the teachings of Christ as ever children yield to a father's rule. And then again, false living must be base and loathsome if Christ is the king who brings truth. It must have been a grand sight, says Spurgeon, to have seen the lowly Jesus roused to indignation, thundering forth peal on peal his denunciations of hypocrisy, those whitewashed sepulchres and platters without sides made clean. Elias never called fire from heaven one half so grandly. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, is the loudest roll of heaven's artillery. See how, like another Samson, Jesus slays the shams of his age and piles them heaps upon heaps to rot forever. Shall not he who teaches us true living be king of all the sons of truth? Let us even now salute him as Lord and King. I think one of the things that you get in Spurgeon's sermons generally, and it comes to the surface in one like this, is the man's absolute commitment to honesty, integrity and truthfulness. Uh, and he, he loves Christ for this very reason. Besides, beloved, he goes on, our Lord came not only to teach us the truth, but a mysterious power goes forth from him through that spirit which rests on him without measure, which subdues chosen hearts to truthfulness and then guides truthful hearts into fullness of peace and joy. Have you never felt, he asks, when you've been with Jesus, that a sense of his purity has made you yearn to be purged of all hypocrisy and every false way? There again, that, that sense of communion with Christ bringing forth this personal honesty and integrity. Have you not been ashamed of yourself when you've come forth from hearing his word, from watching his life and above all from enjoying his fellowship, quite ashamed that you have not been more real, more sincere, more true, more upright and so a more loyal subject of the truthful king? I know you have. Nothing about Jesus is false or even dubious. He is transparent. From head to foot, he's truth in public, truth in private, truth in word and truth in deed. Hence it is that he has a kingdom over the pure in heart and is vehemently extolled by all those whose hearts are set upon righteousness. And I hope you feel the, the force of that. Do I have that uh, sincerity, that reality, that truth, that uprightness as a loyal subject of my truthful king? And then in the fourth place, Christ discloses the method of his conquest that I should bear witness for the truth. And again, you've got Spurgeon really uh, zeroing in on this. He's like a dog with a bone when it comes to this witness for the truth. Christ never yet set up his kingdom, he insists, by force of arms. Muhammad drew the sword and converted men by giving them the choice of death or conversion. But Christ said to Peter, put up thy sword into its sheath. No compulsion ought to be used with any man to lead him to receive any opinion, much less to induce him to espouse the truth. Falsehood requires the rack of the inquisition, but truth needs not such unworthy aid. Her own beauty and the Spirit of God are her strength. And so this is our king. His battle axe is the truth. Truth is both his arrow and his bow, his sword 
and his buckler. He doesn't reign over men by the glitter of pomp or the fascination of sensuous carnal ceremonies. Believe me, says Spurgeon, no kingdom is worthy of the Lord Jesus, but that which has its foundations laid in indisputable verities, Jesus would scorn to reign by the help of a lie. It's important for us to remember, uh, and Spurgeon will pick that up in due course. And then he says, just as Christ did not set up his kingdom by force of arms, so Christianity in truth was never promoted by policy or guile, by doing a wrong thing or saying a false thing. Even to exaggerate truth is to beget error, and so to pull down the truth we would set up. There are some then who say, well, bring out one line of teaching and nothing else, lest you should seem inconsistent. What have I got to do with that, says Spurgeon? If it's God's truth, I'm bound to deliver it all and to keep back none of it. Policy, like a sailing vessel dependent on the wind, tacks about hither and thither. But the true man, like a vessel having its motive power within, goes straight onward in the very teeth of the hurricane. When God puts truth into men's souls, he teaches them never to tack or trim, but to hold to truth at all hazards. This is what Jesus always did. He bore witness to the truth and there left the matter being guileless as a lamb. And Spurgeon here just uh, takes a little aside and says, well, what truth then did he witness to? Ah, my brothers, what truth did he not witness to? Did he not mirror all truth in his life? He says he, he does this sort of very Spurgeonic sweep now over all these various parts, bearing witness uh, to God, bearing witness to God's demand for truth in the inward parts, always telling his sheep who heard his voice of the wheat which would be gathered into the garner, the precious things which would be treasured up when the bad would be thrown away. Therein, says Spurgeon, he was bearing witness that the false must die, that the unreal must be consumed, that the lie must rust and rot, but that the true, the sincere, the gracious, the vital shall stand every test and outlast the sun. In an age of shams, he was always sweeping away pretenses and establishing truth and right by his witness. And now, beloved, this is the way in which Christ's kingdom is to be set up in the world. I want to see you all witness bearers, says Spurgeon. If you love the Lord, bear witness to the truth. You must do it personally. You must also do it collectively. Never join any church whose creed you do not entirely and unfeignedly believe. For if you do, you act a lie and are moreover a partaker in the error of other men's testimonies. I would not for a moment say anything to retard Christian unity, but there's something before unity, and that is truth in the inward parts and honesty before God. I dare not be a member of a church whose teaching I knew to be false in vital points. I would sooner go to heaven alone than belie my conscience for the sake of company. This is a man then for whom truth matters. He says, I saw a church tower the other day with a clock upon it, which startled me by pointing to half past ten when I thought it was only nine. I was, however, quite relieved when I saw that another face of the clock indicated a quarter past eight. Well, thought I, whatever time it may be, that clock is wrong, for it contradicts itself. So if I hear a man say one thing by his church membership and another by his private protest, why, whatever may be right, he certainly is not consistent with himself. Spurgeon's making the point there that someone who says, well, yeah, I'm a member of this particular church, I belong to this particular denomination, but I cannot agree with it in this and this and this and this. Spurgeon says you're being inconsistent 
and the only thing that we know is that you lack integrity. Let us then bear witness to the truth, since there's a great need of doing so just now, for witnessing is in ill repute. The age extols no virtue so much as liberality, so-called, and condemns no vice so fiercely as bigotry, otherwise known as honesty. If you believe anything and hold it firmly, all the dogs will bark at you. Well, let them bark. They will have done when they are tired. You are responsible to God and not to mortal men. Christ came into the world to bear witness to the truth and he sent you to do the same. Take care that you do it, offend or please, for it is only by this process that the kingdom of Christ is to be set up in the world. And so the last thing, very briefly now, our Saviour having spoken of his kingdom and the way of establishing it, described his subjects. Everyone that is of the truth hears my voice. Where then are the people who love the truth? We need not inquire long, says Spurgeon. We need not Diogenes' lantern to find them. They will come to the light. And where is the light but in Jesus? So those who love pure truth and know that Christ is will be sure to fall in love with him and hear his voice. Judge ye then this day, brothers and sisters, whether ye are of the truth or not. For if you love the truth, you know and obey the voice which calls you away from your old sins from false refuges, from evil habits, from everything which is not after the Lord's mind. And that just leaves him with one or two reflections. The first, dare we avow ourselves on the side of truth at this hour of its humiliation? Do we own the royalty of Christ's truth when we see it every day dishonoured? If gospel truth were honoured everywhere, it would be an easy thing to say, I believe it. But now in these days, when it has no honour among men, Dare we cleave to it at all costs? Are you willing to walk with the truth through the mire and through the slough? Have you the courage to profess unfashionable truth? Are you willing to believe the truth against which science, falsely so-called, has vented her spleen? Are you willing to accept the truth, although it is said that only the poor and uneducated will receive it? Are you willing to be the disciple of the Galilean, whose apostles were fishermen? Verily, verily, I say unto you, in that day in which the truth in the person of Christ shall come forth in all its glory, it shall go ill with those who are ashamed to own it and its master. Those questions, I think, are as relevant today as they were when Spurgeon first asked them. In the next place, if we've heard Christ's voice, do we recognise our life object? Are we joined with Jesus in desiring to bear witness to the truth and so see his kingdom come? Immortal souls were not created for merely mortal ends. For this purpose was I born, that with my voice in this place and everywhere else I might bear witness to the truth. You acknowledge that? Then I beg you, each one, to acknowledge that you have a similar mission. I couldn't occupy the pulpit, says someone. Never mind that. Bear witness for the truth where you are and in your own sphere. Oh, waste no time or energy, but at once testify for Jesus. And now, last of all, do you own Christ's superlative dignity? Do you see what a king Christ is? Is he such a king to you as none other could be? Emmanuel, he says, we owe all to thee. Thou art our new creator, our redeemer from the lowest pit of hell. In thyself resplendent and altogether lovely, thy beauties command our adoration. 
Thou hast lived for us, thou hast bled for us, thou hast died for us, and thou art preparing a kingdom for us, and thou art coming again to take us to be with thee where thou art. All this commands our love. All hail, all hail, thou art our king, and we worship thee with all our soul. Beloved, I beseech you, love Christ, and live for him while you can. Work while opportunity serves. While I've been laid aside and able to do nothing, the great sorrow of my heart has been my inability to do him service. I heard my brothers shouting in the battlefield, and I saw my comrades marching to the fight, and I lay like a wounded soldier in the ditch and could not stir, save that I breathed the prayer that you might all be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. This was my thought. Oh, that I had preached better while I could preach, and lived more for the Master while I could serve him. Don't incur such regrets in the future by present sluggishness, but live now for him who died for you. And then, as so often when he's been addressing primarily the people of God, if any present in this assembly have never obeyed our King, may they come to trust in him tonight, for he is a tender saviour and is willing to receive the biggest and blackest sinner who will come to him. Whosoever trusts in him will never find him fail, for he will save to the uttermost them that come unto God by him. May he bring you to his feet and reign over you in love. Well, those are two great cries with which to finish this sermon. Love Christ and live for him while you can. Then come to him if you've not done so. May he bring you to his feet and reign over you in love. Whatever else you may be doing at this season, if you're listening to it just before Christmas, if you're thinking about what lies ahead, if you're contemplating anything of the reign, the rule of Jesus Christ, remember that he is a king in truth and the king of truth. Let us come to him and adore him. Let us trust him and worship him and serve him accordingly. And may it be a blessing to us all. Thanks for listening. Do leave a review if you've got a moment uh, so that we can encourage others to listen to these things. Do come back again next week if you're able as we break into the 19th volume of the Metropolitan Tabernacle Pulpit with Sermon 1094, Always and for All Things. Thank you. God bless.